we're back. Welcome back to the Flat Out RC podcast, the podcast where we talk all things radio control flight. We're talking planes, helis, and drones. My name is Andrew Sill, and I'm coming to you live from Melbourne, Australia. Now, it's been another big week. Uh, I'll get into the news shortly, but uh, we've got a special guest joining us in this episode, Chris Hebbard from New South Wales. Uh, I've got this aim of trying to get people from all around Australia. We had uh, Ray Younger last week from Northern Territory heading to New South Wales this week. A uh, little hint, we'll be coming to South Australia the following week and we'll get someone from WA. I've got someone in mind, just got to respond to my request, but if they do, they'll be on. So let's get into it. Let's take a look at what's been happening around the traps. Well, there's a bit of news this week. Uh, for those of you living in the state of Victoria down here in Australia, looks like Flying Club's about to open again uh, with restrictions, of course, 10 people, which is excellent news. But there is a little condition. You must live within 25 kilometres of the flying field. We have a 25 kilometre movement barrier from our homes. Where does that place me? I'm 50 kilometres away. From, <laughs> I need 50 kilometre radius from my home to get to my local flying club. So looks like I'm going to have to find other ways to get my aero modeling fixed. I do have an option to go and fly at Caulfield Racecourse, which is a designated flying area um, in the center of the racetrack, but uh, that's within my 25K. So we'll see what's happening. But good news for those that live within 25 kilometers of their local flying club, it looks like you'll be back. And I've, I think the way things are going with our, our COVID numbers down here, we should be back and joining the rest of the uh, the country and having a bit of freedom to go and have a fly. So really looking forward to that. Uh, I did finish another model airplane. I've got a, an F5J glider. If you follow the, uh, the Flat Out RC Instagram, and you'll see the story that I put on. That I, It took me literally a day and a half to put this. All I had to do is put a receiver in this model. And it took that long to get it set up on the radio. I made a few mistakes and then had to redo things. But anyway, got there in the end and can't wait to go and fly it. But... There is some more news. Uh, Horizon Hobby, they seem to be the only organization that's really coming out with uh, some new gear, and they've just announced a new range of radios. Now, for those of you that are Spectrum Radio users, you know that uh, they had their, their highly successful DX range of radios. It looks like they've moved now to the NX range. Uh, they had the IX range, the IX12 and the IX20, which are Android operating system-based devices, but now they've got... Uh, the NX range, which is using their similar sort of software that we've seen the DX uh, platform. It's really just a, an evolution of the DX platform, really the latest DX nines and eights and sixes and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but it has got some nice little features. They do look like nice radios. So what are some of those features? Features Well, now you're getting a color display. It just looks brighter and you know, it could aid with the intuitiveness of the software by color coding things, but it's got a color display. It's not touchscreen or anything, but instead of just being, you know, a monochrome kind of thing, you have a bit of color. Uh, Wi-Fi connectivity. Now, this is great. I love this idea of the Wi-Fi connectivity in your radio, which allows you to do firmware updates and things like that. Um, product registration and firmware updates is saying basic functionality, just as uh, such as the f firmware updates. Uh, you're not going to be able to browse the internet or anything. 
but you can connect uh, your device to the internet so that it can capture those firmware updates, uh, which is a lot easier than downloading things to SD cards and loading them up. So that's, that's a nice little feature. Uh, Hall effect sensor gimbals. Love the idea of these gimbals. I'm a big believer of having nice feeling sticks. Uh, and the Hall effect sensors really do help in that, that smoothness of the... Um, of the uh, the stick so that's a great addition smart technology compatibility out of the box smart technology put it in brief it's a some more tech a more telemetry uh, so now you can interface into some of the spectrum um, or smart technology that's in some of the um, spectrum receivers and uh, batteries you know uh, that kind of thing uh, big battery it's a one s lithium iron battery so they're, they're really these these transmitters don't need to run off a lot of volts 3.7 volts 6000 milliamp hour 1s battery lithium iron that's going to last a long time and they're making a big deal of this i don't know whether it's good bad or indifferent but a magnetic usb cable and micro usb adapter so um you charge it off a, a usb cable with a a, a um micro usb i think it is is it micro usb or is it usb c uh, it's a micro USB uh, where you just plug into the back of the um, transmitter and it will charge, which makes it nice and easy. You can use your phone charges, that kind of thing, probably to, to charge them. Uh, what else? Um, it covers everything. If you're into planes, helis, gliders, it's got all that usual functionality. I don't think from that perspective you get a great anything greatly different. 250 model memory, which would probably... Look, if you've got 250 models, I know a friend of mine that's got 70. Uh, but 250 models, uh, that's more than enough. Uh, it also does come with some model templates for the for the um, the Horizon range of BNF aircraft as well. So it comes preloaded. So if you buy a BNF aircraft, you can access it and off you go. You don't have to do any radio setup. So it's a nice little feature that they can do because they're sort of cross pollinated across different uh, categories. Uh, what else do I like about this radio? Um, so yeah, the interface looks like it adds a bit of color, but it's neither here nor there for me because it's almost like having an old DOS computer that now can have a bit of color. It's still a DOS computer, uh, but it's 3.2 inch, so not too bad size. I think you can have a Crossfire um, plug in the back, I think. Yeah, it looks like it. Uh, you can now plug, because you, you've, you've got this USB-C connector, you can actually use your plug your transmitter to use simulators such as real flight um, just with the, the cable that's supplied you don't need any dongle or anything like that it's just one plug that's that's a great little uh, link as well It'd be good to do that um, be good to have it wireless which I don't think you can do with it uh, having a look no don't think you can uh, voice alert so it's got the voice telemetry which which I think the previous models had anyway which is excellent I'd love to have that there's a headphone jack as well so you can monitor the voice alerts using earbuds, which I think is a great, great idea. Um, I want the I want the the, the, the iX20 where you can play music and listen and that kind of stuff. I think that'd be awesome. Uh, the model templates, as I mentioned, the ergonomic design look they look pretty similar to previous models. I can't see how it's greater than any other model. They do they have changed the uh, the antenna folds down, which I reckon is a great option. Uh, it just f sort of folds back on itself over the front of the uh, the transmitter so it's easier to store, which is great. Easy programming. I think it's the same as what they used to have. I really don't think it's dramatically different. 
DSMX technology, which they've been running for a while now. So not bad. So really what they're, they're pitching the NX range is that intermediate. You know, I don't even say beginner. I'm a big believer of buy a good radio first and then you'll, you'll have it for years and years. You'll get better value out of it. But the NX is, is has got some you know advanced functionality. Again, a lot of these transmitters, we most of us use it for pretty basic stuff. So uh, there's, a, I think from memory, if I just go back, I'm looking on the web here. There's a six channel, an eight channel, and a 10 channel. I'd go straight to the 10. If you can afford it, go straight to the 10. Uh, if you're into planes and planning on being around for a while, you're going to end up using a 10 channel transmitter at some point in time. So you might as well. Uh, but um, of course, different prices. Uh, not sure exactly what the prices are yet. They've just sort of been announced. So not available to purchase, but they will be here soon through Model Flight over in South Australia. Probably have them first since uh, their wholesale arm is the distributor, but uh, should be available around the country at uh, all good hobby stores and bad ones as well if they know where to buy Spectrum radios from. So take a look. The Spectrum NX range of radios from Horizon Hobbies. Well done, Horizon, for keeping on giving us some new products to talk about and to play with. Time for my favourite segment, which is our guest. And our guest today is Chris Hebbard. You may not know who Chris is. If you're in New South Wales, you probably do because the man's been on the aero modelling scene for a long time, uh, both as an avid flyer, but also uh, through his involvement in the industry. At one point in time, he owned three stores in New South Wales. The store was called Wings and Things. Uh, no longer in operation. Uh, Chris has retired, but he recently won an MAAA service award. Uh, and that sort of sparked my interest in Chris because I'm interested to know how do you win one of these awards? What do you have to do? And what did he do to to win this MAAA sort of lifetime service award in any way? So I sent a message out to Chris and he obliged and uh, came onto the podcast. So Interesting story to tell. Uh, he's you know, done a lot for the hobby here in Australia, especially in New South Wales. So good guy, but did some great things. So over to our chat with Chris Hebbard. Well, it gives me great pleasure to have Chris Hebbard all the way from New South Wales joining me on the Flat Out RC podcast. Chris, thanks for joining me. My pleasure, Andrew. Now, Chris, your journey in aero modelling has been very, very extensive, and we're going to get into all the the juicy details, but where did it all begin for you? Well, perhaps unusually, it sort of started about the date of my birthday. Um, my father bought me a model aeroplane um, uh, when I was born, uh, or about then. And I was born in 1948, and he bought a 1948 Frog Vandiver kit, um, a, a control line, all balsa wood kit from the UK, from a famous uh, model ma- manufacturer of those days. They also made um, aero engines, which were diesels, and he bought a little 1cc frog diesel engine. And the aeroplane, for, for, for most of the, your listeners that have never heard of a frog vandiver before, was a low-wing aeroplane. looked a little bit like a, um, a chipmunk, uh, and it had all of 680 millimetre wingspan, uh, which 
in old people's terms is 27 and a quarter inches. And that little one CC engine swung a monstrous eight inch propeller. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know it existed until I was 12, but dad had sort of committed me to aviation at that stage. Father was a, a, a frustrated pilot. Uh, he applied to join the RAF in World War II, but he was already halfway across to the Middle East on the Queen Mary in 1940 when the letter arrived at his parents' house to say that he was to come along um, to uh, enlist, uh, but it was all too late. He was going to war as a, uh, uh, as a member of the 2nd 5th Australian General Hospital, um, ended up in Greece in 1941, volunteered to stay behind with 159 others of his uh, um, of his party, of his group, and they looked after 2,800 wounded for the next eight months in Greece. Dad then uh, spent years underneath uh, Thousand Bomber raids uh, as a POW, and then in 1945 he was re repatriated back to England in April 45, not long before the end of the war. And the first thing he did when he got back was swapped uniforms with an American, flew back over Germany as a tail gunner in a B-17. That's my father. So that put me into an aviation mindset as I grew up, gradually learning some of that. When I was 12, I joined the Aeromodeling Club in high school and uh, Dad decided I should finally discover that he'd actually part-built this aeroplane but couldn't work out how to cover it with tissue paper. Nor could he get the engine to run. So for 12 years, he was being frustrated and couldn't get the engine to run. So I still have that aeroplane. And it's never been broken. It's flown heaps. And it used to average 80 laps around the uh, oval at St Ives showground where there is to this day a permanent control line site with three different size ovals. And uh, I had a lot of fun in the 1960s while I was in high school doing that with my dad. And he, he built some planes and flew them too. I did a lot of my own design aircraft, which didn't fly very well. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the Van Dive is still alive and still on display in our, in our lounge room. Yeah. I just want to rewind because you said something that, that stuck in my head and that was you joined the Aero Modeling Club at high school. Did you have a club? Was it within the school that you, there was a group of you or was it an external club? Uh, I was at a what they call in, in, called in those days in Sydney a selective high school um, uh, and the school that uh, my father was rather keen for me to join was a technical high school. So we did, um, we did uh, years one to five in high, so through to the leaving certificate before the days of the six years um, with the high school certificates. And uh, so we did um, the conventional classic things of history and so forth. But my specialty was um, German, uh, technical drawing, woodwork and metalwork. Uh, and then, of course, English and maths and science. And uh, the PE teacher actually was an avid control line modeler. So he started up this aeromodeling club, which met in the woodworking rooms at the school after school once a week. And then we'd go down to one of the parks. We were at North Sydney um, and we'd go down one of the parks actually on the harbour side uh, and uh, play um, on a nice day, uh, play with the control line aeroplanes and th throw chuck gliders. And we did all that sort of stuff. Yeah, like, I'm fascinated with those days, especially the, the, the control line days, because I've come across so many people that, that, you know, of an older generation that know what control line flying is because they saw it or they, they had one or something. How popular was control line fly, flying back in, you know, those, those 50s and, you know, into the 60s? 
Well, I never got involved in a competition since, but we, we, um, uh, I quickly joined uh, the club at St Ives, which is on Sydney's North Shore, still out in the Greenbelt area even today, but um, it's on the road that leads you up into, uh, into home and away territory, Palm Beach. Um, and uh, uh, the, um, every month they used to have a competition day and it was full on. Uh, it was serious. They had, they had the team racing with the high-speed stuff and the aerobatics and uh, uh, the, the big planes were you know, monstrous in our terms in those days uh, with 10cc engines. Of course, they were all open exhaust. Um, but uh, uh, on, on any, any other Saturday... Um, it was not quite so busy, but there was still a lot of people there. Yeah. Uh, and, and I must admit, we went back there um, in 1978. I, I took my, uh, my, my own family with one child and my wife and my parents um, out to, to go and buy some chukpu uh, at a nearby uh, uh, place. And we dropped in uh, to the same venue. And I hadn't been there since about 64, I think. I had to give up playing with my models so I could concentrate on high school, much to my chagrin, and and that was my mother ruling the roost, and and I held it against her for years afterwards. She stopped me playing with my models, um, but uh, we went back there, and the same fellow that used to look after the place when we were there all those years before was still there, and there was no one else there. Oh really? And the fences all around the the circles and everything, and I said, so where is everyone? And he said, oh, they've all gone radar control flying. And he directed us to a field which was down in the middle of National Park, about five kilometres from where we w- were at that stage, um, uh, down in the Garrigal National Park. And the, the flying club is known to this day as the Ringa Radio Control Society. Yeah. looks out over Narrabeen Lakes and the ocean. And uh, we were there only about two months after they'd moved there. Uh, and they had a big, uh, they'd, they'd um, stabilised a quarry uh, in the side of the upper side of a, of a hillside, uh, and it was just bare dirt and a couple of strips of conveyor belt material, and uh, probably about ten square meters of of uh, turf uh, in the pits. Mm. So I joined that in 1978. Um, but you know that uh, control line was was financially viable. Um, I bought. Uh, a little uh, Taipan 1.5cc um, with money I got for Christmas one year. And then the next year I bought a 2.5cc. Um, they were frustrating to try and get started, particularly the diesels. Um, and I remember going to one of the one of the shop uh, assistants that I'd bought the engine from to his house and being shown how to start it. Um, and I bought that original engine from Hobby Co, which was in the centre of Sydney. And that's Business is still going in the Queen Victoria building right next to Sydney Town Hall, um, but they don't do any control line anymore. No, no. It's hard to find control line gear nowadays. But but radio control was expensive and very unreliable uh, at that point in the 60s uh, for most people, and I wasn't that madly into it. I was already um, doing drawings of how I wanted to design my own full-size car or modify cars and all that sort of stuff and reading Hot Rod magazines. So I was a bit distracted, but the aviation thing was still fascinating to me. I, I keep on saying that aero modelers are always into cars and stuff as well, and you've already touched on that, that uh, we're, t- we're a bunch of tinkerers. We all get into cars at some point in time. Yeah, well, Dad would never let me play in the workshop until I was old enough to be a little bit mature about things. Um, and then he gave me my own corner. He, he'd converted the whole underside of the house. He'd excavated it and made it into his own private domain. And he had his, uh, uh, he had his uh, 
photo lab in the corner and he did he did enlargements and all that sort of stuff and uh, did uh, did glass blowing and made medical um, things out of glass um, all sorts of funny medical devices because he was working for the hospital um, and so that uh, sort of I grew in with a little bit of mechanical thing my grandfather loved tinkering my father used to uh, uh, buy old bomb cars before World War II and 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 restore them, um, get them working again. That's how his parents ended up getting a car because Dad bought something for next to nothing. And then while I was still in high school, uh, he bought Mother uh, a little Renault and then bought a spare one. And uh, <laughs> so we pulled all the bits out of it and chopped the rest of it up and took it off to the tip. Um, so the first car I bought was a Renault and I bought a spare one <laughs> and did the same thing. Uh, and 17 Renaults later, we finally bought another brand of car after, well after I was married yeah. uh, and bought ourselves a, uh, uh, what was the first one? Uh, a Falcon. Um, yeah, so that, that sort of, I was, I was just a tinkerer and, and I got into it. Qantas helped a lot to, to, to um, straighten me out, if you like, because I'd learned the basics of metalwork and, and I, I excelled at technical drawing and then um but i wasn't very good scholar at school i wasn't really interested but once i got to Qantas, um which was something dad never pushed me into but sort of encouraged um and uh uh that was i was i was just sort of i was at home i i did very well i was picking up trophies at every year for you know outstanding uh, i wasn't the best but i was one of the top three a few times and so forth because i really enjoyed it and yeah. I learned welding and I learned how to spray paint because um, uh, I spent three months working in the paint shop. And the uh, uh, the foreman gave me the job. There were so many foreign orders going at Qantas. It was ridiculous. Um, and uh, some foreman had given him, of all things, a uh, an ironing board to repaint. So we had to strip all the paint off, put it through a huge vat, get all the paint off, sand all the corrosion and everything, and then I got the job of repainting. It was very interesting to learn how to paint completely around a piece of pipe and keep it all shiny. Um, so <laughs> that was fun. After the control line, I'm interested to know, when did you get into radio control and what spurred that on? Well, I, I, I was forced to drop out of control line just to concentrate on school and then once I got started working on full-size aeroplanes, it really didn't have the same sort of interest of the controller with the little balsa planes um, because I, now I was working on Lockheed Electras, DC-3s, DC-4s. Qantas had two DC-4s. We used to fly to Norfolk Island. Um, uh, the Connies had gone from Qantas, but I was working on the U.S. Navy ones passing through. Um, and this will come up later in my history, the Connie's significance, um, and the 707. Uh, and then I was there when the jumbo jet was, uh, was, came into service. Uh, and it wasn't until I, uh, well after I'd left there, um, because while I was doing that, um, a friend from the Renault dealership where I was buying parts uh, had invited me to work as a navigator for him uh, doing some rallies in a Peugeot. And one thing led to another, and I decided to build my own car. So I bought a um, rather derelict uh, little Renault that was only six years old, but was already in very sad condition, dented and bingled and ratted uh, for $25. And over the next three years, I built the car into a very potent little car. Um, and that was a lot of fun. Um, and so uh, I eventually got offered a job to work as a spare parts assistant uh, which meant I could have weekends off. And instead of working 24-hour shifts at Qantas, which we were doing by that stage, 
and I would lose a stone every time we worked the night shift, seven nights uh, working 11 till seven would knock the hell out of me. Um, I just, my body just did not get accustomed. So I'd lose one stone every time. Um, so I was quite happy to change jobs and my wife didn't want to move into a, uh, into a house until I was going to be home at night. So um, I got involved in that. Eventually took over managing the dealership. Um, in three years, I was general manager um, at 24 years of age. And uh, uh, that was Renault Peugeot dealership. Um, and then moved into another dealership where I managed where we were selling prestige cars um, and Porsches and Mercedes and things like that and Volvos uh, in the Sydney's North Shore sort of uh, uh, Turak type area called Mossman. And uh, the, uh, the, the model bug bit only when we literally went on that family trip to, and visited the control line field and then we went down after we left them that day we drove down to the model flying field and what got me hooked which was rather interesting as we got out of the car um, at the radar control field the then club president a gentleman by the name of Noel Wilson would be known to many of your listeners um, from yesteryear because he was into all sorts of things over many years Noel was just unpacking out of his car a one-third scale Byron Pitt Special. Now, Byron was a company active in the 70s and 80s yeah. uh, in uh, Iowa, and they made injected molded foam aeroplanes um, and huge ones in this case, third scale. I mean, all right, a Pitts is a small plane, but this thing ha had a, a belt drive 60 engine to swing a scale size propeller, and the plane was all molded foam, and you ironed the lightweight monocoat uh, iron on film called econocoat onto the plane and it had came with all the stickers to represent gene susie's world championship winning um a red and white pit special and i was just i was gobsmacked and i said this plane is made out of foam you know i was used to these little balsa airplanes from 15 years before and that got me hooked um and uh, so dad and i decided to go in together and shared the costs and shared the experience but i was busy managing a car dealership so he he soloed along before me it took me 18 months to to go solo um but uh i had a very good instructor and he was very patient and what, what what plane was that what were you flying um i had a couple of secondhand ones i bought one was an ugly stick plane which actually flew quite well um but before that i had a uh an aeroflight hustler um, it wasn't the Series 3, the last one. It was the earlier one which came without ailerons. It was all I could get hold of at the time, and I converted it to ailerons. I modified it um, and um, made it into a tricycle, originally a tailwheel aircraft, and uh, I flew that quite successfully, bent it a couple of times, but eventually sold the plane as a flying concern many years later. Um, but, yeah, that worked quite well. What radio gear were you using? Um, we were just switching over. This was 1978. We were just switching over to 29 Meg. Uh, Dick Smith, who funnily enough was this, was a uh, uh, a couple of years in front of me in my same high school. Dick Smith was um, uh, actively selling uh, radio gear and bits and pieces, but particularly car radios. And he got in on the early stages of CB radio, and he was allowed to sell radios legally. But the silly thing was you weren't allowed to use them unless you had a license. And so I don't know how they ever got around the rules which said to be fit for the purposes which are intended and, you know, how he was legally allowed to sell them. But they were illegal to use because they're on 27 megacycles and that's what the model frequencies were. 
So planes were starting to fall out of the sky in any of the built-up areas because people were on these radios talking walkie-talkie sort of style to the trucks and everything else, and uh, and we were getting problems. Then it got even worse because Dick Smith then started selling model radios, which were absolute garbage, and when you turned them on at a model field, they'd shoot every other airplane was in the air out of the sky at the same time. So they it's were the MAAA of the day had negotiated with the Department of Civil Aid, um, what they call Department of Communications, the right to change frequency to twenty nine, um, which they allocated a bandwidth to, and it was done with great cons- consideration. I believe some of the experts down in Victoria that were running uh, people like Bealby and the people in Fatabra Australia had worked out that they could retune the radios from 27 um, with a new set of crystals and twiddling with the little pots and in some cases rewinding a couple of little coils because everything, nothing was transistorized in those days, um, they could actually retune them to 29. But the radio had to stay on that particular frequency because that was the crystals you were using. If you changed crystals, you'd knock them a bit out of, out of whack. Yeah. Um, so I bought a secondhand 27 radio that had been converted um, and, uh, yeah, we went from there. Then dad was flying more than me, uh, and we lived in two different locations. So eventually I got a radio and he got a radio and, and we both moved forward. That's the early days, but I'm interested now to know, um, you got involved in the industry, the hobby industry. Now you've alluded that you worked at Qantas. Uh, how long were you at Qantas for working in their, 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 um, was it maintenance division that you worked in? Yes, yes, I was. An, uh, I, I eventually got my license as what they call a licensed aircraft maintenance engineer. So I got a ticket that I could actually sign off the airworthiness of the Boeing 707 airframe. I didn't have a, a ticket on the engines, but on the airframes. Uh, so I was, by that stage, um, I was that was five years in. Uh, I could then uh, supervise other people, uh, their work, and then I uh, normally most things, particularly anything involved being control surfaces, you had to have two supervising engineers that would both sign it off before it was legal to, you know, to fly again. Uh, I got the license on seven oh sevens, so uh, that was the, the background to that part of it. And I worked on everything, and I'm rather proud of this, from Blerio to Concord. I worked on the Blerio that now hangs in the Powerhouse Museum in Ultima, in Sydney, Darling Harbour, um, that was the first aircraft to fly airmail from Melbourne to Sydney, um, and uh, that was in the Sydney Tech College um, in the aircraft division at the time, and I helped to do some fabric work to restore it, when it before it went into the museum. And then I was in charge of the landing crew, um, for with all nice brand new white overalls for the first ever Concorde to fly into Sydney in 1972. That was one of the two prototypes that were flying long before they went into service. And uh, so we were the nearest, and uh, this was fascinating, we were the nearest to the runway, the north-south runway, as the Concorde came in across Sydney and then disappeared almost entirely into its own vortex of a cloud. So as it brought the nose right up, the wings generated so much vortex that they actually created a mist and all you could see was the nose sticking out of it and we were nearly on the edge of the runway because they parked the plane as far away from the from the actual terminal as possible, which was ridiculous. And once the uh, c- customs people had got, 
uh, uh, fumigated the plane because in those days they used to walk through the plane with an aerosol yeah, and everybody got. <laughs> um, and and the and the the, um, the there were a few passengers, but it wasn't a passenger carrying flight. Once all the crew had dis disembarked, we were the first people into the plane. So that was rather magic, you know. Bleriata Concorde. There's not not all that many people can say they worked on both. Yeah. Now then, then so you went to Qantas, then you worked at the the car dealership. Then yeah. How... So I was I was busy rallying while I was doing that. I wasn't interested in models at all. Oh, at we know. It's... Still had a fascination. Still had a fascination with aeroplanes. I mean, I never, you know, I was always picking up and reading aeroplane books and magazines and still buying them, but it, it wasn't model stuff. I was going off to the air shows and all that sort of thing that were held in Sydney at that time. But I didn't get back in until 78 when, when I found the RC Club. Yeah, and then? So I, I, I left the... Left I left the automotive industry um, uh, because I hadn't had any long service leave. I kept changing jobs. Um, and uh, so it was 15, I'd been working 15 years. So um, I, I didn't want to continue in the automotive industry. And I took a job with one of my former uh, customers. I'd sold a, a whole bunch of cars to for his staff, for their, um, for their uh, reps and so forth. And I became general manager of a, um, uh, of a, complex little little family business with 37 staff um and uh we had people from every country in the world i think we had islanders we had we had an ex uh, uh british army um uh, quartermaster we had all sorts of people and we used to manufacture brushes and brooms and sell um uh, pet supplies and all sorts of things and um long story short the business was wound up due to a family dispute between the the brother and the sister that owned the business and uh and i took one of the brand lines out of the business uh approached the manufacturers in queensland and uh i bought it from the liquidators and uh we went to set ourselves up in a local um empty uh um, four square supermarket shop three three streets from home and the council resisted and said no you should be in an industrial area and i said well this has been operating in in ordinary uh shopping centers before uh, no, no, no. And um, the um, second time I went back with another application, the young man that was at the council at Ride was more helpful than the first time around and then said, well, you're not going to get through that. We should be in an industrial area, but whatever we change your category. So anyway, we had a talk about it. And because it was commercial cleaning supplies to supply to mum and pop cleaners to clean businesses, banks and everything else after hours and clean carpets and so forth, um, I said, well, what about if we sold brushes and brooms and mops and buckets and things like that? Could we be called a hardware store? And he said, yeah. He said, what else? And I said, down and up. He said, oh, we want to make sure every post is a winner before it goes to council. So he said, what are the other shops doing? There were four shops in the group. One was a greengrocer who now sold tin food because the four square supermarket had closed down. The other was a butcher. And then there was a, a chemist. Um, and uh, and the chemist was round the corner from the famous Dr. Wright that used to be on television in the 1980s on uh, on uh, lunchtime TV, and he used to send everyone up to the chemist just round the corner, and uh, and he said, "What are they all doing?" I said, "Da da da." And he said, "What does the chemist shop sell?" And I said, "Oh, chemistings." And and um, he said, "What about toys?" I said, "Oh, he's got a few diecast, the little matchbox models." Uh, and he said, why don't you sell toys? I said, oh, no, I don't want to do that. I'll, you know. Then I said, well, Dad's about to retire. And I said, we're both flying radio control. I said, maybe I could set him up in the corner of the shop and we, he, we could dabble with a bit of radio control. 
So he, the, the, the council guy thought that was a good idea. So we put down that we were going to be a hardware and a toy shop. <laughs> and uh, so I think, oh, well, that's all right, but I haven't got any money left. So I went and saw Dad and I said, Dad, I said, I want you to manage a toy shop <laughs> when you retire. And he was due to retire in, in a couple of months. And uh, he'd been working for the, um, for the New South Wales Health Commission by this stage. And he was responsible for all matters relating to hospital sterilisation across the country. And in fact, he revolutionised hospital sterilisation, introduced sonic and nuclear and poison gas and all sorts of things. Um, and uh, uh, I said, but I haven't got any money to buy any stock. Can I borrow $1,000? So I borrowed the $1,000 from him. And that was November 1981. And uh, we uh, contacted a couple of suppliers. And this set me up for the future because it was interesting. We had a great deal of trouble trying to get the suppliers that were distributing products like Debro, which you'd be very familiar with, and solar film products and the like, who would sell you one or two packets. They all wanted to sell you a card full or a box full. Yeah. So solar film came 15, they were flat, flat packs in solar film, 15 to a box. And most Debro was at least six and sometimes 12. So if you wanted to buy some Clevises, and you're only a little shop. You only wanted a couple of um, clevises in the in the smaller size, 256 uh, or the 440 size. But no, you'd have to buy a card. I've forgotten whether they were six or 12. Mm. Um, and I could see my money was going to disappear out the door before I even had anything to hang on the walls. But anyway, we sort of managed with that. And I put my own model, uh, my model hustler, for example, hung it on the ceiling and we displayed on that. Um and it was really hard. Uh, we were selling secondhand uh, books, um, uh, Reader's Digest and so forth. And some days, um, and I've still got the, the exercise book I wrote every sale in. Some days we'd make 6 or $7. Uh, and then uh, uh, the cleaning business started to pick up a little bit and I was doing some demonstration work. We became agents for Hoover selling their industrial cleaning machines. So I was doing demonstrations to, to big hotels and things. And my wife was working part-time at this stage as a teacher librarian uh, because we had our second child and uh, uh, she was looking after the fort while I was out and about. And then a fellow uh, approached us about selling to me a radio control model cars. Yeah. And I said, no, no, I don't want to know about them. They're too expensive. Uh, and I don't want to tie all my money up in that. You know, we're trying to make a business of the cleaning business. And he said, I'll put them on consignment. He said, because I'm desperate for new customers, uh, wholesale customers, and I'll consign them to you and we'll settle up every week. So um, that's what we agreed to. He lent me a car called a uh, – um, what was the car called? Um, oh, heck. Not the frog. It was – no, no, it was be oh, long before that. This was the very first of the Tamir off-road cars. They were all a little aluminium uh, – sorry, a little um, fiberglass flat plate for a chassis, an aluminium gearbox, an aluminium suspension arms. And it was the um, it was a Rough Rider, a Sand Scorcher, which was a Beetle. Uh, it was a Barjar Beetle with no yeah. bump, no mud guards and funny little bumper bus. And he lent me this car that he'd been campaigning, and it was battered and bent, and nothing was straight. So I spent the weekend straightening it all out, and uh, polished all the alloy up, and had it all straightened nice. And I I just test drove it because I I was familiar with using a radio. And in those days, if you bought a model car, it had a stick radio, just like an aeroplane. So that was all straightforward. So he was amazed that I'd got this thing all sorted out and because uh, he couldn't. And uh, so we we advertised in the local paper that if you had a model car and you had a problem with it, bring it over to us and we'd 
sort it out for you. And that was my engineering background. Um, and uh, so in no time at all, we were doing a roaring trade in spare parts. And uh, the people would turn up, particularly on a Saturday, and then they want to play with the cars. So we only had four shops in the shopping centre. They'd all be closed by Saturday afternoon. So we ran up and down the car park, which only had about 10 cars in it. And uh, uh, there were no, no cars other than my clients. So then we were looking for somewhere that was a, a bit off-road. So we found there was a local BMX track, which no one was using. So we started going there on a Saturday afternoon. We did that two or three times. I started writing a little um, two-page Roneoed off newsletter just about what the people have been doing. Um, uh, we didn't have a club or anything, but just talking about the people. Some people had nicknames and so forth talking about the modifications, telling them about new parts and that sort of stuff, and just handing them out to anyone that came along. And then um, after a couple of weeks of this, we started, um, we, we sat down and there was a number of fathers involved because a lot of them were kids, but they weren't all. Um, and uh, we decided to form a club. So we were, I think we were the third club in, in New South Wales. And uh, that was the North Road RC Off-Road Car Club for electric cars. And uh, I said, no, I didn't want to be um, uh, the, the, an executive because I thought it would compromise the club by having somebody commercially involved. And uh, there was already one club, which actually is only just down, was just down the road from where we live now uh, at Rouse Hill. And you could only drive there if you bought a car from them. And so a lot of the shops, particularly ones in the city, for example, they were not mentioning any of the clubs because they knew that once they went there, they wouldn't come back again. Um, and uh, so we said, no, everyone's welcome. So in no time at all, we were the biggest club. And a year later, I was the founding chairman of the state association and we were the first association in Australia. And we named ourselves after the Americans, which was called ORCA for short, uh, Off-Road Radio Control Association, and then in small print of New South Wales. And, and I insisted that I was the chairman. I had no voting rights and none of the executive did. They wanted us to be president and all this sort of stuff. And so I made a big thing that there was no commercial involvement, that anything that our business, and by the way, our business was called Wings and Things Hobbies, uh, and our cleaning business was called Clean Move Products. Um, and uh, nothing that Wings and Things Hobbies would sort of was never highlighted. I was very concerned about that. I felt that we were going to grow if we could keep the commercial side minimal because there was a, a backyard operator operating at the other club, um, which funnily enough was right next door to the control line club in St Ives. And uh, again, there was this commercial uh, influence that people were negative about. Um, the year after that, we formed Orca Australia and I was the founding chairman of that. And we had the first nationals uh, at the International Car Show at the Old Sydney Showground in the horse marshalling yards, which was undercover uh, during the International Car Show um, uh, in 1985. And uh, that was a roaring success. Fantastic. You're in the middle of the whole uh, Tamiya craze, the, the car craze oh, in the 80s. Oh, very much so. And yeah, very much. What was happening in the in the in the the flying side of things at that time as well? Was there was there a flown effect as a result of people flying uh, playing with cars moving into into to planes a, as well? A little bit, a little bit, um, not a lot. I was in still involved with flying, and that was that was my passion. Um, the model cars was an administrative thing. I did a little bit of driving, but I I. I found it was a bit stressful in some ways, particularly because I was usually trying to organise things at the same time. Um, 
uh, and I was progressing slowly with my own flying skills. But um, by the time we were in, we were sort of serious with the model cars, I was also vice president of the model airplane club. Um, and I remained vice president for 23 years nonstop. Um, and uh, so I, I basically trained every president to come through um, because I say, no, we've done that before and it didn't work or we'll do it this way because it does. Um, and, uh, and I quickly got involved in, in that administration level as well. Uh, and uh, we grew to about 250 members. Uh, the, club, the club was known to those outside of uh, the local area as the, uh, as the, the, the club in the, in, the, in the gully or the canyon and otherwise known as Death Valley because uh, a lot of people that came to visit the fly would crash there. Um, and the main reason... And, and I, I can relate it to even some, some of the commentary I've heard you talk about on some of the uh, some of, of your other interviews is that this was literally in a valley. So you your back was to one to one cliffside virtually. It was covered in trees, but it was it was only twenty feet behind you. And on the other side of the runway, there was this long ridge running uh, east west. And then on the western side of it, it just went vertical. So if you had to take off, you took off uphill, uh, and this there was a converted quarry, so you actually had to take off uphill to the west and then pull up very quickly. Um, if you were taking off to the east, you were going downhill and you were flying out virtually, we're a fair way in, a few kilometres in from the ocean, but you're flying straight towards the ocean. But you learn to do proper circuits there, and that's something that I enjoyed teaching in later years. You learn to do the proper circuits of doing rectangular circuits. You yeah. did crosswind, downwind, and you did you, you lined up on finals. Because if you didn't line up properly, you were going to run into the scenery. You're going to run into the trees or you're going to hit the cliff. Yeah. Um, and, and our people became very good at it. It was rather funny quite early in the piece. Um, I remember while I was still learning, my instructor and a number of others um, went with a couple of people within the club that owned a pilot's license and they rented a couple of planes and they've been invited to go down to Cooma and uh, the Cooma club uh, were hosting them, put them up for the weekend. They bivouacked them with various uh, members and they supplied the fuel. So all the guys had to do was manage to get their planes in these light aircraft and go down and have a flight. Well, they had a, they had a ball, but they were totally um, disoriented because Cooma is actually um, a, a rolling hills and, and there's virtually no trees and there is nowhere to sort of position where you're going to turn, whereas we're all used to turning where a telegraph post was visible on the horizon or where the big tree was here or the big rock, um, and we'd use that as marker points. And the, the club members at Cooma took off in any direction um, because there wasn't any wind problems, whereas our people will learn we only could ever fly east-west or west-east. Um, so it was quite interesting. So your involvement sort of on the administrative side is quite extensive, which, you know, I was I found out about you from a Facebook post where you had been granted yep. a, a, a MAAA Service Medal Award. And I, I saw that and I, I thought, isn't that a great achievement? Like the, this is like getting the gold medal from the MAAA for the, for the work that you've done behind the scenes. And, you know, I've been involved in committees before and I know how, how hard it can be and how much how dedicated you need to be. But what did that mean to you winning that that MAAA Service Medal Award this year? Well it was very it was out of the blue. <laughs> um, of course uh, uh, unbeknownst to me um, there were various people had been involved in being interviewed 
the first indication I had at all was when uh, uh, the president of the MAAA, um, Mr. Tank, gave me a call. And I, I knew exactly who he was when he said who it was, but I've never talked to him in life. And I said, so what have I done wrong? Yeah. <laughs> and he said, well, that's a lifetime achievement award that we want to give you um, for what you've been doing. And I said, really? I said, I don't think I've done anything all that special. So anyway, that was the, and, and, and that was earlier in the year. And then they said, well, look, you know, when things calm down with COVID, we'll have an appropriate award ceremony. And that eventually happened uh, a month or so ago uh, when um, the new vice president of the MAAA, Tim Nolan, who's president of the New South Wales Aero Models Association, uh, um, made sure that I came to uh, the Penrith Regatta Centre um, where they held the uh, the rowing for the Olympics in 2000 and where we regularly fly about 10 times a year. We fly uh, float planes and flying boats and have done for years and I've enjoyed doing that for the 10 or so years we've been doing it. Um, and that's the only float plane venue in Sydney. And we used to go out to Wallarawang near Lithgow uh, once a year and do it and there was for some years many years ago there was a, a the same group including tim were flying off a private lake down south of sydney um but that was on a farm and then that got sold and long story short but anyway so he said you'd come out to that and he, and make sure you come uh, and i said well i'm not sure that i am coming no you've got to come uh, and then he finally said because well, we're going to actually give you the award so my wife made sure she came as well yeah. Now the uh, it and congratulations because it, it really it's not an easy award to give out. You know the AAA just doesn't give them out willy nilly. So a big congratulations and, and a big thank, thank you. you for all the work that you've done because you, you you deserved it. And now I want to know a bit about your activity with aero modelling. What pathway did you go down? Were you more into the scale aircraft, aerobatics, gliding? What was sort of your your focus or was it a bit of everything it was a bit of everything i suppose it was it was um uh, a lot of the a lot of the the push and shove came from the direction that we were sort of involved with in a commercial sense um my wife was helping me part-time from 81 and she came on board full-time and gave up teaching in 88 and uh by that stage, my youngest uh, who who was only eight was already involved in racing model cars um, and uh, and then started flying model aeroplanes, uh, electric planes. Um, but it was significantly sort of tied up with uh, what I was doing within the Ringer Radio Control Society, WRCS. Uh, as a general thing, I was running any event that was going sort of thing, uh, usually sort of doing the, the groundwork, and quite early in the piece found myself with a microphone in my hand, and I suppose if I've got any fame at all within aero modeling, it's most people know that I'm often a commentator, big events. Um, and I, I was just doing that because I wanted to educate people. I, I, you know, it's one thing to put on a spectacle, um, but it's just entertainment if that's all it is. But I always wanted people to understand a little bit about it, whether they're other aero modelers or even more significantly, if they just come along for a look-see. And for most of these club events, they're only family and friends. But I wanted them to, to say, well, look, you know, this this aircraft's got a 10cc two-stroke engine or it's got a four-stroke engine or in more recent times it's got a gas turbine and I'd spend a little bit of time explaining how they'd start a gas turbine because that always fascinates people. 
you know, how how does a turbine do it all on its own? You know, because it's got the uh, uh, it's got the FADEC control and the and the computer takes over those sorts of things. Um, and I wanted people to understand a bit more because if they did, they were more likely going to get involved. And I started doing that very early on with, when we got sort of serious with the hobby side uh, within the shop. So in, we started, as I said, the end of 81. By May 83, we'd outgrown um, the little shop we had and we moved. And we moved all the cleaning facilities into the garage of the new shop, which was uh, uh, in a shopping strip in Gladesville. And it had an upstairs residence, which we quickly took over because uh, it was vacant. It was ours. But we, we filled that up with excess stock and we put all of the cleaning stuff in the um uh in the garage because by this stage it was it was not of great interest to me um and we were still selling to our regular customers well we weren't promoting anymore but the the hobby business was going well in general the cars were very successful and we always sort of said we should have called the business not wings and things hobbies but it should have been wings and wheels or the other way around i remember wings and things because i used to read airborne magazine back you know yep. through the 80s and you'd advertise in that and and you know whenever my family and i would go up to sydney there were all these hobby shops that i wanted to go and visit because i'd been reading about them and I, I I've walked into Wings and Things and I, I knew where Gladesville was and we were staying, you know, up the road kind of thing, I think in Hunters Hill or something like that. It wasn't too, too yep, far yep, down that way. Next suburb, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I said to my dad, oh, can we go? And, and we drove past it and we stopped and uh, parked the car at the front of the shop and went and had a look. And then I remember going into the, the hobby stores in the city as well, the hobby co's and having a look around. Hobby co, oh, I was a bit disappointed. It didn't have a lot of plain stuff in it that I wanted to look at. But um. Wings and Things was that that sort of Sydney-based hobby store that I was aware of, besides the ones that I, I knew in in Melbourne. And so I've got very very fond memories of of the brand Wings and Things kind of thing. Well, that's great, yeah. And it's funny, you know, it, it's many years since we've actually moved out of the business, but uh, you know, it, it we run into so many people that say just that, you know, and and. Uh, they're, they're, they're now mature people with their own kids. So, oh, I remember I went and bought such and such a recent things. And I go, yeah. really? Yeah. <laughs> but but it, was, it, it was something we'd, from the experiences that we'd had in the starting up process and, and that I'd had before we got involved in, as, as a shop. And, and it was that a lot of the, unfortunately, a lot of the hobby businesses just didn't look after you. And uh, they were, in far too many cases, were more interested in ripping you off uh and and that was that was not just an embarrassing thing but it's done so much harm to the hobby in past years and and the repercussions are going to be felt for generations to come i think um also a lot of the people in the hobby business and we learned this the hard way in some respects uh because by 1988 when my wife came on full-time uh we we found ourselves inadvertently becoming a, an importer and a wholesaler because one of the people that was bringing uh, some of the hot up stuff by this stage was all sorts of special bits for Tamiya cars, particularly, um, which were the leading brand at the time in the model cars. There were limited slip diffs and all sorts of stuff. We could get to a point that actually the only part of the original car of those Sand Scorcher Rough Rider days that we still had was the front stub axles and everything else, everything, gearbox, gears, the, the suspension, the chassis, everything would be replaced. 
Um, and we were bringing a lot of it into the country after we found ourselves having to take over the business because the guy that was bringing in for us decided to migrate to the US. Fortunately, he introduced us to a whole bunch of manufacturers in California. So we flew over there, got to meet them all. And while I was there, I also started um, dealing with a couple of American um, model airplane manufacturers. And uh, so we started bringing that sort of stuff into the country. And then we started supplying other shops because they wanted what we had. And we found that most of the time, the shop owners were not business people. They had no idea how to actually keep the doors open, you know, how to actually make enough money to pay the rent. And I'm not talking about ripping people off and charging too much, but they, um, the common thing, very common thing, and it still irks me to this day, is that so many people got into the business by working out that if they could buy three model aeroplanes, um, and it was mostly aeroplanes they'd look at, three model aeroplanes from a supplier, they'd get a discount maybe. So they'd negotiate a discount. And if they were really cheeky, they'd actually manage to sell their two, two of their mates, the aeroplanes for full retail and end up with one for nothing um, or, or a lot less than retail. And that's, and that's how they'd continue their business. And basically, they wouldn't even be able to save enough money from one week to the next to pay the, the, the electricity bill that came in the end of the month. Um, and it just was bad business. Now, I'd come from a situation where having my engineering background with Qantas, that had helped me a lot. Um, and it meant that even when I was in the car industry, I was known as Clark Kent because I could look at a, at a full-size car, still can to this day, and turn around and say, Andrew, this car's had a king hit. This car's been bent big time. And you'd say, really? How? Where? And I'd say, look at this, look at this, look at this. And uh, so I, was, I learned that. And I and my my people working under me did the best job. So we had um, the last dealership I managed. We had a, a showroom under glass and fluoro lights. So all our cars were secondhand, but the cars were good enough under fluoros, which is really hard test for a secondhand car, that they look brand new. And time and time again, people would come in. And, and we'd say, oh, well, we've got such and such out on the floor out there. And they said, no, no, I don't want a new car. I want a second-hand car. I said, no, that car's four years old. Um, and that was the way we presented them. So w my perspective was before the car ever went for sale, the car got a wheel alignment. The car got a transmission service. The car got an oil and, and complete fluid change. The car got details till its nth degree. If it needed tyres, they were matching tyres. I mean, it, it was done right. And that's been my philosophy all the way down. Because Qantas taught me one thing, do it once and do it right. Hudson Fish was still the chairman of the board and he used to present the trophies every year when I was an apprentice. And he drummed into us, you never get a second chance in aviation. If you screw up, you're going to kill people. And so I just applied that right through. Um, and so when we got involved with the hobby business side of it, um, the, one of the first thing when we started wholesaling, I, I was pushing that we would supply whatever people wanted. If they needed one packet of Dubrow Clevises and that's all they wanted, they were going to pay the postage costs, but we'd have it in the mail that afternoon. Um, if they wanted to have uh, two uh, rolls of white solar film and one of black and, and one of red and one of yellow, that was fine. We would do that, whereas the actual importers wouldn't do that. So in no time at all, we found that the name brands, and some of them probably predate your interest, at, or certainly before Flat, flat, flat RC came out, but the Dawn Tradings, the Dawn Tradings, Toy Traders, all these big companies that were the distributors for great planes, Tamiya, uh, Solar Film, um, 
Fataba, uh, all those companies were making life difficult for people. They also, if you placed an order, you'd get it if you were lucky in a fortnight. And you'd go to visit these places and the staff would be wandering around and they'd, they'd say, oh, it's morning tea time and everyone would sit down. Bloody hell, we didn't know what morning tea or lunch was. you know. And so we had a different attitude to it. So we started supplying people as they should be. Now, we were preceding what you now expect. If you get if you get on the internet and you want to buy something, and I won't name, won't name specific companies, but you want something, whether it's in Australia or one of the overseas suppliers, you expect them to get off their butt and put it in the in the mail or the post or the freight that day. Now, it wasn't happening 20, 30, 40 years ago and still isn't happening with a lot of shops. And what we also discovered, and this really, really irks me, and this is one of my pet peeves, that shops time and time again, and, and those, your listeners should pay attention to this, will tell the customer that the product is not available. They'll tell any story at all that it isn't available for whatever reason. And the truth of it is that the supplier is not supplying them because they haven't paid the bills. This happened time and time again. And we lost money with supplying various people who suddenly they'd be there one day, we'd supply with something and be gone the next day. It even happened in one shop in Sydney, which coincidentally we ended up taking over the site. Um, that was at Kingsford near the Sydney airport. You ended up having multiple sites, didn't you? We had four in Sydney. We were the only shops or the only company in Australia with multiple shops in the same state, let alone the same city. Uh, but that was partly because the, the, the shops folded that were in the areas and in 1995, the first one closed down on the Sydney beaches, uh, northern beaches, and uh, we had people who were coming quite a long way, half hour, three quarters an hour to visit, and they're saying, we love coming to you, but it's such a bloody long way, we would <laughs> wish there was someone closer. And uh, a shop had closed down a year or two before, um, and anyway, we decided to move into the area and have a branch shop. It expanded our buying capability because it meant we could actually buy bigger and, and sometimes get a better deal. Uh, and then in 98, we did the same thing in Kingsford. Uh, we supplied stuff on a Friday and on Monday, we get a letter to say they've gone into liquidation and they were owing us the money we just supplied. Um, so we, 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 we didn't take over the business, but we ended up um, dealing with the liquidators and, and then we renovated and refreshed the whole concept. And then our fourth shop was at the Sydney, Sydney International Airport and uh, we were we were harassed by Sackle, the Sydney Airport Corporation Limited, to open a store there. They wanted uh, a shop selling model aeroplanes at the airport, and they wanted it open before the Sydney Olympics. And we went out there, and they walked us out in the middle of the car park, and they said, "This is where your shop's going to be." And we said, "But the but the shops, the building's about fifty meters away." And they said, "It won't be by the time the Olympics is on. We're expanding that much." Um, so that was the least profitable store because everybody had it wrong. Uh, they were convinced we we're going to do huge trade um, uh, to all the passengers. Um, they weren't interested in buying stuff because they, they're either arriving dead tired after a long international flight or they're traveling overseas. And, but um, what we did sell, and it was quite fascinating, there was 10,000 staff at Sydney Airport and they're, they're all captured for the day because they haven't got time to go out anywhere because it's 20 minutes by shuttle bus to the car, staff car park. By the time they get there and back again, their lunch is over. So we had lots of lay-bys. 
And funnily enough, we sold lots of model cars and model boats, sailing boats and the like, at Sydney Airport store, um, and not anywhere near as much aeroplane stuff as, as they expected. But what we were able to do, and that was a unique fun feature, we were the only hobby shop um, in in the airport in in Australia. In fact, I think I think in just about everywhere, but Schiphol in 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 Amsterdam actually. Um, but uh, what we were able to do was direct them to the other three stores, and it was quite fascinating because I'd visit every shop every couple of days and I'd often run into people and chat to them at the airport and then maybe next couple of days or next week I'd run into the same people in one of our other stores. The business closed closed in 2009, didn't it? Um, uh, long story short, in 2000 we just opened our big store. We moved moved from the Glazel store you probably visited and opened a bit much bigger store, three-level um, offices and workrooms upstairs and the wholesale storage area in the basement and then the main floor was very large. We had about 70 model aeroplanes and helicopters hanging on this built hanging on the ceiling and we had uh, video stations for every different department for the cars, the boats, the planes, the, the plastic models and everything and uh, uh, one of our major suppliers, Dawn Tradings, announced at the time we had a big celebration. Tony Farner came up for model engines because we'd been working, we'd been in business 20 years by that stage and uh, uh, he announced that we were a destination store and I thought that was very appropriate. People would come to our shop from all over. So it wasn't a matter they would just happen to be in the area or they lived nearby, they would come from anywhere to do it and that was great. But um, I got sick and uh, I was bleeding internally. I had two heart attacks and I had kidney stones and then they found I had bone marrow cancer all in the same year. And my wife, um, who's been not just by my side, but um, she actually technically was my boss uh, because we were both managing directors, but she was the one that hired and fired, paid all the bills and paid all the wages. And so everybody answered to her, including me. Uh, I did all of the overseas purchasing. I did all of the costing for overseas. She did all the local ordering of um, uh, Tamir and plastics and AFX and that sort of thing. But I looked after the RC side. And we had uh, 23 staff in four stores. Uh, and for about a year, I was spent more time in hospital than I did uh, at work. And uh, uh, one time I, I, I was in hospital for a couple of days having had an, uh, an internal operation, came home for the next six weeks. I w had to stay at home convalescing. But that afternoon she was faxing me invoices to process. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was a load on her. She was handling it well, but I knew it was going to get her down. We just spent a fortune on renovating the new shop, $275,000, and put in air conditioning and um, uh, computer points everywhere and uh, went on and on and on. We wanted to put a full-size aeroplane out the front. We, and we approached the council to put the front half of a replica Mustang coming flying out of the building. Yeah. And the council refused because they said we were No, no, the council said yes. And they then said, but we need to put it to the Department of Main Roads because we're on a main road. And RTA refused because they said we we're going to be a traffic hazard because everyone are going to be looking at the, at the shop and driving to each other. So they eventually let us get away with putting a mural on the wall, uh, which we did with a Mustang, a uh, big, beautiful doll coming out of straight out of the front of the shop. And, and, and we painted across the rest of the building when the roller doors were down. Uh, it looked like a runway and the plane had just taken off. And then on the side, of it, we had a panther tank and a rocket taking off and just showing all the stuff we did. Uh, but anyway, so we put the business up for sale and uh, uh, we sold the main store in 2002. Uh, and the wholesale business went to the same people. 
Uh, we closed the airport store in 2002, uh, just before Easter, because September 11 had killed international travel. And uh, um, the month we closed in, uh, so that was September 11, 2001, in, um, I think it was the April, was Easter that year, uh, 32 shops out of 150 closed at the international airport um, because everyone was basically open only for a couple of hours because there was so little traffic, a little bit like COVID now. Uh, COVID's far worse. I really sympathise with all the poor devils. And ANSET had folded uh, two days after September 11, and that's little known to Australians. ANSET had a huge knock-on effect in Australian tourism, far bigger than September 11 did in the United States. That was an immediate short-term effect. And it had an, an immediate effect to our shop, interestingly, in the airport, because the people who were in transit from the United States coming to Australia um, during that actual attack the terrorist attack were not told until they landed what had happened and we were right next to the a and b arrivals gate so when they actually came out through customs and were able to meet the meters and greeters the the public our shop was the literally the nearest one to them and uh we had two uh big tv screens uh, they weren't flat screens in those days but we had tv screens normally running videos and a lot of them it was homegrown stuff because I was filming everything we did, modelling and uh, flying and, you know, and helicopters and everything. And uh, we turned them on for the news. And so these people were walking in and there were crowds just watching the replays of the people falling out of the towers and all that sort of horrible stuff. And uh, it was very, very emotional for us in particular at that time. Anyway, so um, ANSET, when they closed down, um ANSAT had its own terminal at all over Australia, but in, in Sydney, and probably the same thing happened in Melbourne, the, um, uh, the the liquidators literally put a lock on the front door of the terminal. And every every retailer was in there, the news agents, McDonald's, everybody couldn't access their, their shops at all. So the money in the till, the food, everything. And and they couldn't get access. It went on for ages. And they ended up, they had a, a, a group um you know, legal battle to gain access to it because no one had ever considered that the, 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 the principal, in this case ANSET uh, or Qantas, from, if that had happened to them, were ever going to go bust. So that, that was never in the in the lease. Um, so anyway, we closed down and just closed the store up in 2002. Uh, and then we sold our DY and Kingsford stores to a couple um, who were migrating uh, from China. He was an Englishman. She was uh, Filipino-Chinese. And they wanted to take up permanent residency in Australia. And one of the opportunities was if they bought an Australian business. So they bought our DY and Kingsford stores. And uh, um, we we managed them part-time for them for a while while they got their permanent residency. Uh, and then finally we're out of it completely by 2006. Um, by that stage, uh, my health had improved a little bit. Um, and I was no longer working seven days a week because we were 365 days a year 6 a.m. to 9 p.m. at the airport, and we were seven days a week at our main store at Glazeville, um, and we were there when we weren't having holidays at all. So it was, it was, we burned the candle at both ends, and we shouldn't have. Um, I think we, we, we were, we were, we, were, we weren't trying to push it. We, we were just, we were, we were sort of going with it. We were very involved in the internet. Um, we were supplying the shops around Australia with uh, computer discs with uh, all the pricing, which most of them didn't know how to use. So we had explaining 
um, letters of, of how to actually turn a computer on um, and do that. And they could order online and, and they were more of them were starting to do that. Uh, we, were, we had an internet um, uh, website where we were selling online as well. Um, and a lot of people have said to me today, you know, I bet you're glad you're out of it. And I say, well, health was a major issue, but quite honestly, I think that the way we were doing it, we'd still be successful. And proof of that is Mike O'Reilly in Model Flight. And he's going gangbusters, just from what I can see. He certainly seems to be doing quite well. Um, and he's followed the, very much the same sort of path and worked bloody hard at it. A lot of the hobby stores are doing well at the moment as a result of COVID. Just getting stock is half, half the they battle. Are, yeah. yeah, it's I, a big I know for a fact that Hobbyco in the city uh, has sold more, uh, more um, uh, jigsaw puzzles than they've ever sold in their previous 60 years in business or something. Um, yeah, so it's, it's certainly changed. Uh, but um, the internet's had a dramatic effect. There's no two ways about it. But we worked on the basis that if you came into our store, if at all possible, we would have it there for you to see and to touch. And even if you could buy it cheaper from someone else who said they'd get it in for you, it was there. And in most cases, the fact that we had it and it was now in Andrew Sill's hands um, meant that you'd buy it on the spot. And, and uh, that was a big part of it. So we had a huge range and we had, we had a multi-million dollar investment in stock um which we just everything we were basically making we were plowing back in we weren't living on the you know on the on the fat of the of the calf we, we were um taking minimum wage but we were able to keep our head above order by and pay everybody and and had a good credit rating with everyone because of we uh, had for many years been an importer. Uh, by 92, we were the Robbie importer from Germany, uh, Hirobo from Japan, uh, the world's uh, leading helicopter manufacturer at that time and multiple world champion. In 1998, we brought the managing director and one of his top flyers out uh, and we nearly got the, the world champion, that was Hajimoto, but he was getting married that weekend. Um, and, that, and brought them out to come to the Shepparton uh, Heli uh, Spectacular. Uh, and uh, then the next time around, uh, Hajimoto came as well uh, and put on a fantastic display. So I mean, we were all supporting that. With Robbie, we put on the Harobi uh, Cup, which was an electric event um, uh, that we put on a number of years. Harobo, we did the Harobo Cup year by year. Um, uh, obviously encouraging that. Then we started selling um, and distributing for Australia Morris Hobbies, which were in the 1990s were doing this fantastic array of profile, semi-scale looking aeroplanes of Sukhois and all sorts of aircraft and, and some unusual ones. And we built them and displayed them. Uh, frequently we do them in a hurry. Uh, I remember we got a GB um, R1 series and arrived, I think, on the Tuesday and in, in, a, in a full kit form and on the Thursday night we were displaying it at the, uh, at the International Toy and Hobby Fair in Darling Harbour. Um, it wasn't flyable but it had an engine in it uh, and it was, had all the, all the fillets and I mean, I'd worked all night, mate of mine, uh, Mike Ronell, uh, who uh, subsequently w went to work for O'Reilly's years later and then for Bolly. Um, Mike uh, would, would frame everything up and I'd do the sanding and then I'd all do the covering in the kitchen. We are up all night. We had the plane ready. Uh, another time we decided to sponsor one of the big clubs in Sydney for um, 
uh, a, uh, a particular class of, uh, of aeroplane um, that they were having and they had had for a number of years. And we said, would you like a sponsor? And they never had one. And we said, they said, oh, yeah. So we decided, well, we better participate. So um, that particular plane was called an Astro Hog. And I'm going to pre preempt your question at the end by saying, yes, that's one of my favourite aeroplanes. <laughs> Um, it's a lovely, lovely plane to fly. Uh, designed in 1958, revolutionised aerobatics, and you should know all this. I'm sure you do. I know um, the Astro Hog. Yeah, it was the first successful low-wing low aeroplane because the previous one, that one it came from, was uh, the Smog Hog, which was a shoulder-wing aeroplane. And uh, uh, the original one had the tail surfaces were rubber-banded on. Then SIG redeveloped a little bit. Originally, it was kitted by Berkeley. Um, and so we, we found the only SIG kit we could find anywhere in Australia and we bought that kit and um, I, think we, I think it took us four days uh, working at home in my workshop after hours and that one kit became three. So we built one tail dragger, one tricycle, and then we built a third one and we made everything lightweight. So where it had plywood we put in, except for the bulkhead, uh, we put in balsa and we went thinner but it was a full-scale um, Astrohog, and that one we fitted out with an Astro uh, geared, uh, brush, uh, brushed um, uh, uh, motor and an electric system. So we had all three aircraft were, were there on the event on the weekend. So we not only sponsored, we participated. And for years, that was the way in which I did the building. So we often did things in a hurry. And I must admit, I enjoy building most when I'm actually with somebody. It's hard for me to knuckle down and get into it on my own but if I'm working with one or two others and we quite often our my garage single car garage that I had in those days um, never saw a car but it just had uh, workbenches made out of old doors and uh, we'd often have three or four people in there often working on their own planes but it was good fun yeah now post uh, all the industry involvement you know what? What are you doing now around aero modelling, and what do you hope to still achieve? Well, I'm I'm getting on in years, and the uh, the cancer I was diagnosed with back in 2000 looks like it's come back again to haunt me. Um, I'm now on an immunoglobulin replacement therapy, which means I've got to self inject myself with about 50 cc's of stuff every week uh, because I have no immunities, so I'm semi quarantined um, because of COVID. Uh, because I'll pick up anything that's going as an infection now. Uh, but I'm still managing to get a little bit of flying in. Uh, I picked the times when uh, my current club, uh, which is uh, Hawkesbury Agricultural, uh, sorry, Hawkesbury Aero Modelling Club out at Vineyard, um, when it's not too busy, so I'll go there during the week. Um, uh, although they're pretty good at maintaining their distances, I just try to keep that to a minimum. I don't go near shopping centres and and so forth. So, uh, um I'm uh, enjoying more electric planes, although um, probably my current favourite flyer is a 40-something-year-old Balsa USA quarter-scale cub. No one can tell us actually how old it is. I know who the builder was. My mate Michael flew the plane as a teenager and he's now well in his 40s uh, and it was an old plane then and it's still got the original covering on it. Uh, it's these days powered by, I don't know, probably engine number four. I know it had a Super Tiger in its early days, and I've got a DLE 20 in it. Uh, but I like flying uh, some of the electric. I love flying the uh, uh, the Duracraft Tundra, which is a sort of scale-like cub plane with, fl with flaps, um, and fly that off water with the floats that it comes with. Um, 
I, I I love German aviation, so I've got a Dornier 335, a Mischmidt 163, a Mischmidt 262, a Fock Wolf. Um, uh, so they're all interesting. Um, I'm still, when the opportunity arises, still doing commentary. I've done a lot of that uh, at events. Um, I did uh, uh, I put I did commentary at a um, full size air show at Bankstown in '98. Backed up in 2000 for that. Um, got involved with the uh, wings over Illawarra down the south coast um, in 2008, nine and ten. Did the commentary there um, for modelling, always for the model side of it. Uh, did it at Tamora for the Jets over Tamora for a number of years. Um, Murray Scott, who preceded you as a as an editor doing a magazine out of Australia years ago. He used to come over and then one year he was sick, so I took over doing that because all these people were coming to the museum and coming out and watching the planes flying at the Tomorrow Aviation Museum. They didn't know what, they were, what we were doing. And, you know, everyone was flying turbines by that stage, so I'd go up and down the row and ask questions and I soon got the gist of what they wanted to know. So most of them wanted to know how they worked, you know, how did the turbines start and everything, so I started explaining that. Uh, did uh, RAAF shows um, last year? I did um, what would be the proudest moment of my model aviation activities. I got uh, invited to do the commentary at an air show at a former air, um, naval air station uh, in northwestern Sydney. Used to be known as HMAS Narimba. It's now a TAFE centre. And during the 60s, 70s. Um, yeah, and 60s and 70s and early 80s was a uh, was an aero club called Schofield's Aero Club, and uh, anyway they closed that all down due to due to the ingress of of housing. And last year they put on a show called Fast Jets, and for one and a half hours we entertained um, uh, not no one's sure of the numbers, but probably close on 2,000 people, uh, and raised nearly 18,000 for children's charities and uh, a fellow called Levi Wagner who comes from up the north coast uh, put it all together in conjunction with Paul Bennett Air Shows um, and Paul's based up in um, the Hunter Valley at Rutherford uh, and if you haven't interviewed Paul yet you need to I, uh, I've asked him, I sent a message to him but I never got a reply so I'm going to the... track him down though because I have yeah I have asked him to do it now while COVID's on because while he's still oh, a I did. boy, <laughs> no, I did. He's just not responding. But I'm going to try again. I'll, I'll get well, him. Well, Paul, Paul qualified me on flying turbines years ago, um, and uh, went up to Maitland and got qualified flying a a, um, a calf rookie uh, with an Australian-made turbine back then, and uh, a lovely fella, brilliant flyer, and in those days. Uh, back in sort of the turn of, of the twen- of the 21st century, Paul was flying models. And he said to me at one stage, one day I'm going to fly on a Spitfire. And I went, oh, yeah. And he, and he, and I, it, he sort of said, no, I mean a real one. I said, oh, okay. So Paul won the Australian Aerobatic Championship in a pit special. Uh, and I'm not going to go through his whole history. You need to talk to him about it. But Paul now organises air shows all over Australia for local um, local aero clubs and so forth. If they don't know how to do it, Paul will put it on. So Paul's been involved in TIAB and he's done all sorts of places, does a brilliant job. 
and not only organising it, but his flying display is stunning with his wolf special. Yeah, I've seen uh, him pit. fly. I've seen him fly and, a tyre. Uh, yeah, well, you have to see him when he does it with the motorcycle, doing a somersault over him as he flies between two oh, two gee. ramps. Uh, <laughs> um, anyway, I've known Paul for many years, and Paul Paul brought his um, half-scale pits, his model of his full-size wolf, along in his semi-trailer. Um, to uh, the fast jets last year, and he was the air boss and uh, flew that and his uh, folding wing Tomcat. Uh, and the, all the guys who were involved put on a fantastic display. And I was so proud that we did so much for charity. And I must admit, in all the years I've been involved, I've always tended to see that the aero modeling group is self centered um, and they're doing it for themselves uh, and not really thinking about other people, let alone children's charities. And they're going to do it again next year if COVID eases off. Um, maybe we'll need to see a, a vaccine before then, but the intention is to have it in around April to June uh, at the same location on what is now just a big patch of the remaining runway that's all that's left that is now a skid pan for a driver yeah. training school, but big enough to fly the jets off it. And uh, that yeah, worked so really well. Um, awesome. So I'm very proud about that. Um, not that I did a lot. I just talked on the microphone yeah no um, you, you, you played your part so no i did well done i did well i i took it i believe i andrew i took it from entertainment which is what i've been trying to do for a long long while to a, a bit of education uh you know when we first started the hobby shop um it when we moved in 83 i quickly discovered that we had now had a little bit of extra space so i uh, I, I, I set up a modelling room and every Tuesday night, for those who are interested, they'd pay, I've forgotten what it was, $20 or something. They would get supper and that would cover consumable materials and I would teach them how to use super glue because people didn't understand it. This is back in the 80s. And I'd teach them how to cover with, with covering plastic with, with the iron-on films so that uh, we, we had a couple of airframe sections, fuselages and, and wings and so forth. And after the covering's finished, I peeled it off ready for next week. But I, I would teach them what to do um, because otherwise I was trying to do it while we were trying to run a business during the day. And it takes a while to explain all that. And so you've got other customers who weren't necessarily interested in yeah. covering an aeroplane. They wanted to buy a model car. So it and it helped and everyone was helping to get together. And it also helped grow the shops. Uh, grow, not the shops, grow the, the clubs. And also, not long after that, the uh, club approached me and said, will you um, uh, sign people up to join the club? Now, you've already answered this question, my final question, which is my signature move in this podcast, which is what has been your favourite model. You're the first person to preempt it. So is it true? I hear it's the Astro Hog is your favourite model of all time. <sighs> I suppose there was a lot of reasons for it. One, because we built three of them in a few days, um, and uh, we all we had was a bandsaw and uh, and a bunch of wood, um, and and they were they were covered. I covered the uh, the two fuel powered ones. One had an OS seventy in it. The other one had a Sato eighty, and they were both covered in in iron on uh, gloss text, which is the pre painted Solitex. Um, so we didn't have to do any fuel proofing. Uh, and then the third one was done in sole film to keep it as light as possible, and. Uh, that sort of made it special, but I uh, ended up with uh, the two fuel-powered planes and flew them for years, and eventually both of them got cracked up um, uh, due to flying with students 
uh, and every now and then. Sometimes they catch you out at the last minute, and even though I was pretty good at saving the situation, it did happen. Chris, it's been a pleasure having you on the Flat Out RC podcast, and congratulations once again on your MAAA service medal. Well deserved, uh, you know, as we've found out, the, the amount of work that you've done within the industry and then at, at club level as well has been immense. So a big thank you, Chris, for all your efforts over so many years. Thank you. My pleasure. About to leave, already packing. Come with me, I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. A very big thank you to Chris Hebbard for joining me on the Flat Out RC podcast. Hope you enjoyed that chat and uh, all the news that we had this week, which is good to have something to talk about, really, during these uh, depressing times of COVID. But anyway, things are on the up. Our numbers here in Australia are doing well. If you're listening from overseas, some of the other countries aren't doing so well. Hang in there. We will get through this. That's what everybody's saying. But we have no option, so let's just do it. Uh, And... We'll be back flying in no time, and I look forward to bringing you some more content. Uh, haven't been able to take any photos this year, so you know, using some of the older photos out on the Flat Out RC Instagram and the Facebook page. Want to do some more videos on YouTube, so don't forget subscribe to all the Flat Out RC channels so you stay up to date. Instagram, flat, uh, Facebook, and uh, YouTube. And if you've got any feedback, and you want to send me any ideas, any guests that you'd love to have on the show, jump onto the Flat Out RC website at flatoutrc.com.au. Go to the contacts page and send me a message, and I'd love to hear from you. And thanks to those people that do send me messages. I really appreciate uh, your support and your enthusiasm for the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you stay up to date with whenever it comes out, which is normally on a Wednesday. So have another great week. I'll be back next week. We'll have someone from South Australia joining us. Travelling around the countryside.